sometime in my first year on the job, my boss took me aside and he said, Jocelyn, do you want to be right or do you want to get to the right answer? Um, and I was like, oh, dang it, you've really got my number because I so wanted to be right. But to, the, like, to just bludgeon people with my intellect and like prove that I had the truth um, was how I was interacting with people. And of course, that is the last thing that will get them bought in. <laughs> Welcome to the MIT Catalyst, a podcast series by the MIT Club of Northern California. Each episode, host Julia Yu interviews MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates who are movers and shakers in the Bay Area. On this episode, Julia sits down with Jocelyn Goldfein, a friend of MIT who's been on all sides of the entrepreneurship table, from founder of a small startup to executive in big tech to her current role as a managing director at a venture capital firm. So Jocelyn Goldfein is a managing director at Zeta Venture Partners, and for most of her career, she's been an engineering leader, uh, namely at VMware and Facebook. She's led projects that have adopted machine learning, such as the newsfeed at Facebook. Uh, she studied computer science at Stanford and is also on the board of trustees at Harvey Mudd and is a very close friend of the MIT community. Yes, my partner at Zeta, Mark Gornberg, is, is not only an MIT alum, but he also is on MIT's board of trustees. And actually, my uncle David went to MIT. Oh, there we go. So MIT's in the family. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So thank you for being here. So my first question for you is, what advice do you have for new entrepreneurs? Well, I, you know, I feel like this is age-old advice, but it's also really the most important advice, which is to solve a problem that matters. Uh, the I did a startup in my 20s, um, mainly because startups were cool, and me and my friends wanted to be entrepreneurs. And um, and that was, you know, a great motivation to get going, and we worked really hard and had tons of hustle. But ultimately, the problem we picked was not a problem that we were serious about, and ultimately was not a problem that really mattered to customers either. And, um, and, and, and so... Um, ultimately, that, that company pivoted and did do well in its second act, but it, it wasn't, um, you know, because my motivation was to be a founder and not to s- achieve a certain mission, I didn't stay for the pivot. And so I would say, like, don't become a founder just for the sake of doing it. Become a founder because there's a problem you're incredibly passionate about solving and one that really matters to other people. As an investor and being on the other side of the table, what are those sparks and those things you look for in entrepreneurs? I love it when there's a great founder problem fit. You know, we talk about product market fit, but I think there's a a fit between founders and the problem they're trying to solve and when they truly have a unique insight into it. Um, And because there's so many things that look like or smell like or feel like problems or there's so many ideas that have been tried over and over and over again, frankly, and... and, um, so why, how can we have the hubris as, as either entrepreneurs or backers of entrepreneurs to think, oh, this time will be different? Like, or, because if you've got an absolutely brilliant idea that just is clearly brilliant and, and nobody could question it, then that would be an obvious idea by definition. There would be nothing innovative about it. So by definition, to be innovative, an idea kind of has to, um, to sound crazy in some respect. Either it has to sound like it's not possible to do, but you have figured out the way that it's possible, or maybe it was not possible until very recently, but now the window has opened, but you better be the first one through it. Or just possibly um, no one has realized how, how, how good and desirable this idea would be because it sounds crazy and, impo- and, and undesirable. And, um, and it's your, found- your unique founding insight 
um, that makes you realize, hey, this this thing actually is needed. Um, and so whatever it is, like to, to do a startup is intrinsically a contrarian move. It's intrinsically the belief that the status quo and every other smart person around has completely failed to identify this idea that's so obvious to you. And so what is distinctive about you and your insight is, uh, is what gets me super excited. That's great. And I want to go back to your time as uh, engineering leader at VMware and Facebook. What tips do you have for engineers and budding entrepreneurs who are working at a larger company and how to innovate within a larger structured organization? I think innovation in the body of big companies can be hard. And, you know, it's hard because innovative ideas sound like bad ideas. They sound risky. And the bigger and more successful your organization, the harder it is to take a big risk. Um, it's also structurally hard because usually big companies there's have more than enough work to do. Whatever team you're in is overburdened, has too much work and too few people. And so for you to stop doing the work that's already planned for in your roadmap and to do something completely different is like taking something away from your boss. Or maybe it's stepping on the toes of somebody in some other team. So... Um, so, so that's what makes it difficult to do in a big company. And I think that the, the skill you need, um, if you want to try it, is actually, and, and I think this was a tough one for me to learn as a, as a computer scientist and an engineer, because I'm just like, hey, like, my idea is obviously good. The best idea should win, right? Um, and I think you do need to have substantively a really good idea, but you also need the ability to get other people bought into it. You also need sort of the understanding of, you know, not just not just the silver tongue of being persuasive to other people, but actually really the empathy to think about what other people's needs are, what their agenda is, how they stand to gain or lose from the risk that you want to take, um, and, and the ability to kind of bring them along and, and get them to see how... and to frame your idea in a way that it's obvious how it helps them. So um, why it's a good risk why they should want to take, because you're asking them to take a risk too, not yourself. And so that, that ability to drive alignment around an idea and is sometimes I call it thought leadership, and I think it's really tough to know what, exactly what thought leadership is, but I think it's that. It's the ability not just to have a great thought, but to get other people bought in. And, and I think those skills uh, we don't learn when we're studying computer science and engineering. Right. And, uh, and I pretty much had to learn them on the job. So if you can find a chance to learn those skills while you're still in college, I would take it for sure. I think the, the sociology department has a lot to offer us engineers. <laughs> so is it a bit of a rude awakening, navigating the buy-in, navigating politics? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I think sometime in my first year on the job, my boss took me aside and he said, Jocelyn do you want to be right or do you want to get to the right answer? Um, and I was like, oh, dang it, you've really got my number because I so wanted to be right. But to, the, like, to just bludgeon people with my intellect and like prove that I had the truth um, was how I was interacting with people. And, of course, that is the last thing that will get them bought in <laughs> and will actually get to the right answer. Um, so that was just like an epiphany moment for me. Um, and, uh, and, and after that, I really worked hard. Um, a book that I read around that time, actually, that my boss and I read together and discussed heavily um, is a book by a guy named Robert Cialdini called Influence. Um, uh, I think it's been published under two titles, Influence and Persuasion. I think they're approximately the same book. And, um, and it's not 
actually ostensibly a book about leadership. It's actually a book about kind of the fallacies of the human brain and sort of how we think we're rational, but but like here's some bugs in our in like some consistent bugs in or human rationality. Or predictably irrational. Yes, yes, precisely. Another good book. Um, and it was just so illuminating because it was like, okay, you know, it may not be exactly rational, but but there's there is there are actually um, principles that you can have a principled mental framework about how people think. Um, but I think the most important thing to develop, honestly, is not, um, you know, to be insincerely manipulative. I think the most important thing is to have genuine empathy for other people, to genuinely be able to, to put yourself in their shoes and think about their needs. And I think that when you're being sort of insincerely manipulative, I think, just and just sort of, you know, using your powers of influence to, to achieve your own agenda, but to harm others, that is what I classify as politics. I think the work of actually aligning many people who have different agendas and different interests and, and sort of actually thinking um, up through what everybody needs and how to make a project or an idea work for everyone. Um, you know, I don't, maybe like in the little p political sense, like of a political system, like that's politics, like bringing agendas together, but I think it doesn't deserve the, the, all the connotations we attach, the negative connotations of corporate politics. And so I think that's alignment work or, you know, actually I think that's the core work of leadership in a big company. Like that's what leadership is. It's not getting up on a table and making stirring speeches. It's actually caring for people and, and, and fi- helping them figure out how to succeed in working together. Thank you. That's very profound. I want to go back to what you said around the founder problem fit. So do you have a framework or a litmus test to, or is it intuition that gives you the red, yellow, green? Well, I look exclusively at AI companies, or at at least companies that want to be AI companies. And so I think there's actually a particularly important, I mean, probably in any startup, it's important that founders understand the domain of the problem they're trying to solve. And, you know, I mean, I think there's the, the, just the graveyard of startups is littered with, like, you know, arrogant tech people who thought they knew how to, you know, come fix healthcare or whatever, but without knowing anything about the subject matter. Um, so that's important no matter what. But um, I think in AI or anything involving data science, it is absolutely crucial that you know something about the data. And that's because, you know, that, that, that horrible old cliche, lies, damned lies, and statistics, right? You can rationalize stats to say anything, and you can have, um, you can have, and, and it's so hard to find clean, good data that's meaningful, and it's so hard to figure, it's, it's so easy to fool yourself with numbers if you don't know what's going on. And like, you know, I just remember data science projects internal to Facebook that were, you know, trying to tell us what was going on with the productivity of a certain team or the the functionality of a given feature. And, like, somebody coming over who was just a data analyst and was like, oh, I found this really interesting, you know, correlation that actually the the more hires a recruiter has made with a certain hiring manager, the more productive they get or the more hires they make. And, you know, it's sort of like, oh, well, that's like a spurious correlation. It's actually like the longer they work on a given role, like they develop a pipeline of people for that role. And so if, you know, if they, if they switch every six months, they never have a chance for the, like, like if you actually understand something about the causality of what's going on, um, you can, it, it, it's so easy to impose a human narrative on what the data is telling you and just go off the rails. So what are you mo- most excited about in AI? Well, I, I think I think a lot about the different things that AI is good for. It's good for personalization. It's good for classification. It's good for predictions. You know, it's not good for like, is this yes or is this no? It's not good for like completely binary right or wrong answers. 
Um, but but that that kind of probabilistic outcome, um, as the AI gets better and better, as the data sets we have are better and better, we start to be able to use AI to take more and more risk with AI. Um, I mean, I think it's no mistake that AI got its boots on in consumer, in applications like the Facebook newsfeed or the Netflix movie recommendation, because it's sort of like, well, if you improved um, the movies you're recommending to people, then they'll watch more movies, and the customers of Netflix as well as Netflix both win. But if the recommendations are not so good, like, you're no worse off than if you didn't have a recommendation. Um, and, and at the time, at least, we thought the same of the newsfeed. Like, if you were a cat person, we'd show you more cat photos, and that was, you know, better than just showing you random stories of quality. Like, history may judge that there was more downside risk of, uh, of, of ranking the Facebook newsfeed than we thought. Um, but it made sense for to start there where it was sort of like, well, there's upside if we get it right, and if we get it wrong, no harm done. Um, as we moved into the sort of the sphere of business problems and sort of more mission-critical issues, we could use AI to sort of help augment human beings but still give humans the last word. So it's really an enhancement to human productivity. Like imagine a machine translate, translation platform that does the first draft, but a human being still makes the final corrections. So you get human-quality translation, but the human who did it was far more productive. Um, I think... And, and of course, ultimately, AI may get so accurate and so precise that it can take over the job and do it for the human without much human involvement at all. All that is is great and good and, and will make companies more productive, more efficient. But I'm really excited for the next act of AI, in fact, which is when we start to be able to use AI to solve problems that are just, not just to replace humans, but to solve problems that were too hard for humans in the first place. And so I think climate change is the really obvious acute crisis for the planet not clear how humans are going to solve it. I think AI will be a big, a, play a big part in the solutions. Uh, I think the same for, for human health. And, um, and I think there's a whole bunch of other problems like that, some less glamorous ones like making data centers truly autonomous because the complexity of our infrastructure has gotten way out of control. I think cybersecurity right now, there's a huge asymmetry where attackers only need to find one vulnerability to exploit. Defenders need to defend everything. Um, and so I think in cybersecurity, AI can be the key to actually providing people with safety and data privacy. Um, so that's, that's what really, you know, when I think about like, it's a fine thing to make the world more efficient. I mean, that's going to make, you know, people prosperous and um, and have, you know, better jobs that are less manual and less tedious. But, but ultimately where I think that, you know, and I don't know if 2025 is soon enough to sort of even reflect backwards. I think we'll still be looking forwards at that point in time. Um, you know, but I think sort of when historians look back on this century and look at the rise of AI... Um, if it doesn't destroy humanity, I think it'll help us solve these problems that were too hard for humanity. And on the flip side, is there anything scary about AI? So first of all, I, I am not at all concerned about killer robots or sort of term Skynet scenarios. Um, I think that that's pretty silly. I wish that as an industry we'd landed on any term other than artificial intelligence because it you know, just makes us think of consciousness, and that's not present in these. Like, these algorithms are not moving towards consciousness. It's math. Um, so I'm, I'm not scared about that. I, I am scared about people using AI without really being able to look inside the box and understand what's driving the decision making. And there's certain decisions that are so grave, I'm not sure they should be given to an AI without a human being. And I think in particular about weapons targeting systems and military applications of AI, I'm really not sure um, you know, how autonomous we want weapons to be um, and, and decisions that that involve human lives. Uh, I think the criminal justice system, we have really well-documented 
examples where using AI to determine sentencing, for example, has been a disaster. The intentions were good, which is, well, let's hand this over to somebody objective because maybe these human judges are subjective. Um, the problem is you train an algorithm on a bunch of subjective decisions and you're going to get more subjective decisions. You're not going to magically remove the bias from the, the, the human bias that was in the data that you fed it. So, um, and so, so we have some you know, really clear cases there. And so I think that we've both got to be careful what problems we apply AI to. And we've also, it's got to go back to, we've got to have experts in the data, in the context of the data, who are involved in training the AIs and who can understand the potential bias in the data. And the good news is, you know, that human judge is subjective and they're always going to be subjective. Like, even if they're presented with evidence of their lack of objectivity and they try really hard to be objective, like, you know, we, we aren't perfectible. But, but a data set is math. And if we can remove bias from a data set, we actually could have an objective answer out of an algorithm. Um, but I think ultimately, like, the best solutions for all of these things where it's sort of, it's, it's scary to remove the, to remove the human accountability, um, but we're also scared of human bias, I think that the machine and the human working together, the whole would be greater than the sum of the parts. So that, I think, is promising. That's a great way to think about it is it's complementary. It's not mm-hmm. a substitute, right, which is what, right. what uh, you know, media sometimes blows it out to be, that we're all going to lose our jobs and robots are going to come after us. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't see why this wave of technology would be different than every other wave of technology in human history, which is some jobs become obsolete, but, but ultimately more work is created, and usually work that lives higher on the food chain is, is more fulfilling and meaningful for humans to do. I want to talk about failing fast. What do you have to say about learning from mistakes and failure? So I would say that, so I graduated from college in the late 90s, and, um, and I would say the concept of, of failing fast really started to dawn on us during that kind of first 90s tech boom, like the, dawn, the early years of my employment. Like agile methodology didn't exist when I graduated, um, but it came into being over the next four or five years. And and so I feel like um, I didn't learn this concept because it was told to me or I could read about it. I kind of learned it by doing. And, and, and the way you learn this concept by doing is actually by doing way too much work and then finding out it was all a waste. An old mentor of mine once said, all adult learning comes from pain. And I think that's true. <laughs> like we're so open to new experiences and new ideas when we're, when we're small. And then, um, you know, the more we sort of cement our understanding of the world, the harder it is to change and the more painful it is to change. And so you only change because you're forced to. And I worked for a startup right out of college called Trilogy and then did my own startup after that. And, you know, in the context of Trilogy, just over and over, you know, we would we would build these massive enterprise systems for our customers who were grappling, who were enterprises trying to adopt client server and e-commerce. And, um, and you'd go, you'd spend forever building something that turned out to be the wrong thing. This was most poignantly brought home to me in the startup that I did, which I mentioned earlier, where we didn't have a strong sense of problem or mission. We were trying to do email management and monitoring um, because we thought that was an important problem to solve. And we spent 18 months figuring out that that was not a valuable problem to most people to solve. Like there were a few customers who were willing to beta test it for us. But when the point in time came where they'd have to pay, they were like, mm, yeah, like this is worth a little bit of money to us, but not a lot. And so it was just this this moment of like this dark moment of, oh, my God, I have wasted 18 months of my life of working furiously, of, of doing what I thought an entrepreneur did. And it was really all for nothing because we didn't get these feedback loops and and sort of realizing 
you know, in, in college, there's right answers and wrong answers. You have a problem set. You have a lab. Like, there's a correct result to get. Like, nobody set you, nobody sent you, you know. On a wild goose chase. On a wild goose chase. Exactly. But in life, in business, like, it's all wild goose chases. There is no map. There is no path you're supposed to be following. You pick a path at random, you could spend a long time wandering in the wilderness. And so this was just, like, really humbling and really sobering. And, um, and I think that the, um, the Internet and the advent of client server is really what freed the tech industry. Um, and it's not a coincidence that, I, that, this, that Agile, that these methodologies came about in the first few years of my career because those were also the dawn of the world in which we could release code onto servers that we controlled, which meant we could update it all the time. And before that, you know, we were stuck spending a year writing software and then putting it on a CD and shipping it out into the world and praying that we'd ever hear back and get feedback. But when you're running on your own web servers, then you can see in real time what your customers are doing with it, and you can find, and you can change and update it in real time. And so that was the conditions that made Agile possible. It was always desirable, but it only became possible when, when we as technologists started to take control of the deployment environment of our, of our software. And so... Um, Anyway, I think I think fast failure um, is is a way of life and a religion and should be, for you know almost everything where we can update it as often as we want to, um, and definitely should be a way of life not just for for code and for software but actually for ideas. You know, I meet entrepreneurs who have, you know, this great idea and they tell me they're six months from from getting any feedback on it because that's how long it'll take them to build a prototype. And I'm like, really? Why don't you mock up an advertisement for it and run a Facebook ad? And if nobody wants to click on your ad then, you know, damn, maybe you shouldn't spend six months building a prototype. And, you know, and by the way, if you're worried about what happens to the people who do click, well, like, make a website for them to pass through to and sign them up on your beta list. Great. You know, um, so I think there's really simple things we can do to test ideas before we go bonkers um, implementing them. And I think it's good. You know, I talked about the need for inspiration and the need for, like, a unique insight that you have as a founder, but you can't be so in love with your insight that you're afraid to test it. I would love to push more on that because as an entrepreneur, we become wedded and very emotionally attached to an idea. And, you know, the idea of perseverance, right? Never give up, never give up. But at what point do founders have to look in the mirror and say, hey, maybe this isn't working. I got to pivot or maybe this is just not going to work at all. Every day. I mean, there's all this Kool-Aid. I think Silicon Valley is really responsible for peddling a lot of Kool-Aid about entrepreneurship. And, like, one of the things I'm sure every young entrepreneur has heard is, you know, that, that you know, Y Combinator found the thing that was most predictive of success was this quality of grit. Or, you know, VC says, what I'm looking for is a founder who's willing to, like, run into traffic or run through walls. And so there's this idea that if anybody tells you you have a bad idea, like, you're, the way to be successful is actually to be, to ignore that, to, to persist. Um, and I did say earlier that, like, what characterizes true innovation is contrarian thinking, is that you see something that others don't. So how to hold that intention with, okay, how do I respond to this negative or this critical feedback? And, you know, I think the answer is you can't take negative feedback at, at face value. You can't let somebody tell you what to do. But you should take their feedback as a symptom, um, you, should, you should not let them tell you to sort of stop doing your startup or stop, stop serving your market. But you should take their feedback as evidence of something. And I actually think that as engineers and scientists, we are a little bit better equipped by our education than, than 
people with a business background, because the scientific method is to have a hypothesis, is to have a theory, but then to test it. And you don't actually embrace it as truth until you've proved it. Um, and, and, and the notions of, of, of peer review, of skepticism, like all these kind of instruments we have to interrogate whether what we think is true is actually true, those are the instruments we should bringing, be bringing to our innovative ideas and our inspirations that are business ideas fundamentally, not just scientific hypotheses. And, um, and so I think as scientists, we kind of have some of the, the equipment to do this already, which is you know, to believe that we've thought of something new, to have this great idea and inspiration, but to fundamentally hold it as a theory or a hypothesis until it is proven. And so your job every day is to prove it. And if somebody says to you, your idea stinks, well, so what? Ignore them. Um, but if somebody says, I don't think people will want to buy that, then you can construct an experiment. Like that Facebook ad is an experiment to see if people, actually, it just was, it's just an experiment to see if people have enough interest to click. But I promise you, if they're not interested enough to click, they're definitely not going to get their wallet out. Um, another way to test the experiment of whether people will buy is to go describe it to people you know and ask them if they would buy, something engineers are very uncomfortable with. Um, so I think that's the, that's the key to it. And then, you know, that run through walls and, like, run through traffic, it's, like, not – you shouldn't do that irrationally. You shouldn't irrationally ignore, like, a Mack truck speeding at you down the highway. Um, but what you should, once you've proven your hypothesis, once you have evidence that you're right, you should be willing to work really hard and endure a lot of, um, you know, exhaustion. Like, it's still going to be difficult. Even if you're right about your hypothesis, it's still going to be really difficult to implement it, and you're still going to have to work really hard and deal with a lot of setbacks. Um, and you're still occasionally going to find that you're wrong about some things and have to have the resolve to fix them because you care so much about solving the problem. So... Um, I would say ultimately we have to be inspired by the problem we want to solve um, and, and really single-minded about doing that, but very open-minded about how to solve it. That's great. It goes back to do you want to be right or do you want to get to the right answer? Yeah. And get everyone's buy-in along the way. Absolutely <laughs> necessary. I mean, no software of significance, no platform or technology of significance has been built by a person working alone. We have this, you know, kind of mythos of the solo founder of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg going off in a corner and writing Facebook or you know, uh, Sergey and Larry making Google. And it's sort of like those founders wrote 1%, like did less than 1% of what was needed to bring their vision to reality. What was great about them as founders was actually that they could galvanize an army of people to work towards achieving their vision. Um, and that's what made them great. And it took, I don't like the military analogy, it took a village, right, to, to, to create those products that have changed the world. And so if you have a vision um, of a way that, of a change in the world that you want to see, you know, first you've got to validate your hypothesis, but then, yes, you've got to be able to galvanize people to, to work their hearts out, to see it through. We end every podcast asking, summarize in a sentence what your startup secret sauce is. Outcomes matter in the short term. Relationships matter in the long term. The rest is details. With that, thank you so much, Jocelyn. This has been such a pleasure. A pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the MIT Catalysts. This episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. Special thanks to our guest, Jocelyn Goldfein, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. This is our last episode for 2019, so we're wishing you and your loved ones a happy holiday season, and we'll see you in the new year.